Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. We're going to take a slightly different approach today. It feels incredibly relevant in a time like this where many investors are looking at portfolios that have fallen over the last 12 months. I want to say in recent months, really over the last 12 months, inflation is rising, interest rates are rising. We have to look at our expenses differently. There are a lot of things that investors and consumers are having to rethink or will have to rethink in the coming months. So today I'm joined by Evan Lucas, uh, who has joined us before and gives us excellent insights into macroeconomics and markets from his role at InvestSmart. But today he's going to talk about his new book called Mind Over Money, which is about how we engage with money and wealth and how we can make better decisions. Evan, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Gemma. That's, um, that's quite a nice lead in there. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, I do think it's an incredible time to start thinking more carefully about money, right? We had this wonderful period for many investors anyway, where you could, you know, it was dartboard stuff, right? You could make money and it was great. COVID was very, very difficult for some people, but it was also a lucrative time. A lucrative time for many others, right? So it's been yeah. quite an extraordinary period. And now things are changing. So I'm giving a, a lengthy lead in here to this question, but I it's probably for context. Anyone who's studied economics at any point, even in high school, would know that the basic principle of high school economics or basic principle of economics is this idea of the rational person, the rational consumer, and that we know how to maximize our utility. Love that term. Yeah, I don't, I know. I don't Such know how an much economics ut- term. <laughs> Such an economics term. I don't know term. how much utility you've had today. Yeah. Uh, most of us tend not to think in those terms. We know that you know, many of the recent Nobel Prize winners in economics like Daniel Kahneman and so on have spent their time proving that we're not rational at all, which frankly you probably don't need a Nobel Prize to work out. Your book's far more accessible than Kahneman's work. I won't lie. I had a lot of trouble with some of his stuff. It's quite dense. Can you describe what you're wanting people to think about as it relates to their behaviour? Yeah. So... Perfect. So Kahneman is one of the guys that I absolutely loved at, at university and I agree with you. His stuff is dense, but it's, it is fascinating because why I wanted to write this book is in the end, we are all unique. We know that. And, you know, my background is not just economics. I actually at university thought originally that I wanted to do stuff in medical science and did that sort of whole idea and did, you know, psychology and physiology and all that stuff as well. And I've always loved it. And then why I wrote this book is because the other thing that always is interesting from personal finance books and all that kind of stuff is there's almost this one size fits all when they write it for you. And that's just not true because we are all different. And as you alluded in there, your behavior is part and parcel. So what I wanted to do with this, how I wanted to use Carmen's work and and sort of talk to you, you just alluded to the lead in there about the loss that we're currently going through. Three things to come with straight and foremost about this from a, a psychological point of view and money. Human beings are physiologically the same as they were from 36,000 years ago. Like, so we are physiologically almost identical. Like there is no major change at all. The difference is our lifestyle, clearly. I mean, we know that. I mean, the Stone Age to where we are now are not even comparable into that kind of thing. And, and why that leads into it is that what has changed particularly for you and me is what's referred to as delayed return. So back in the Stone Age, there was only things you had to think about was today, tomorrow, getting food, shelter, knowing that the seasons would happen, full stop. Now you need to be thinking about thousands of different things every single day that won't just happen today or tomorrow, but they'll happen next year, 10 years, two decades, and at the end of your life. You know, that means choosing your job, where do your kids go to school? Uh, you know, do I have enough money for here? And, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that was part of the reason to start going, okay, what I've just described to you is that how as a person do you view time? Because time is the one thing that money can't buy. You can gain time by having money to allow you to do certain things when you want, how you want, in a way that you personally want, but you can't buy it. You can't stop time. So from my perspective, what I'm trying to do in the book is actually to get you to understand 
the continuum that is time and where your money sits into it. Because the other thing that a lot of people do is that we believe that we need our money to be here and now today forever, which isn't how it works. You need to be thinking about your money the same as time is, which is on a continuum. You have some money for today, some money for tomorrow, and some money for beyond. And Carmen's work is around that idea as well, along with someone like Harry Markowitz, who won a Nobel Peace Prize for his portfolio theory. All that stuff I describe in a way to actually relate to you. Because the fundamental question that we're also coming to the Gemma is, what is money to you? What is money? And why I ask that question is that it's different for everybody. The way I describe money, and I don't want to be sound facetious or pretentious here, but I, I all money in my view is is potential. And what I mean by that, I think of it more on the lines of like physics potential, which is money in your wallet isn't money. It's just a piece of paper. It has the value of 50 bucks and can therefore turn from being 50 bucks on a piece of paper and the potential value to all of a sudden being $50 on a night out or on a new book or on whatever it happens to be. That's all it is. It has the potential to go from the money that you've earned to be an asset that you want. And the in-between, the money is the transfer because it's just an IOU. And that's that's how all of this kind of thought process is what I want you to ask yourself is what is money to me? How do I view it in time? And what do I want my money to help me do? And again, the Journal of New England Psychology describes the most common response is autonomy. Human beings want autonomy and money helps you, in my view, get that autonomy because if your money can help you do what you want to do today, tomorrow and beyond, then that is the autonomy that you're after. And therefore, you don't have to have and be beholden to a job, be beholden to a certain level of income to therefore allow you to do the things that you want to do. That's so interesting. I love that point that we didn't have to think about the future much. Yeah. 10, 20,000 years ago, it wasn't really material. You were just basically trying not to die. Yeah. That was pretty, pretty much so your job, me, yeah, don't exactly. die. And getting back to your original point about like, so the rational economics is also a bit of a problem. So the original concept of homo economics, which was sort of came out in about 1850s, 1860s, depending on who you want to read up on, it just doesn't exist, right? So the whole principle of of rational economics is that we have complete and full information, which you and I both know is impossible because not even computers can have full and frank, full amount of information at every single decision they make, that everything that we do is rational from the point of view that it is always advantageous to what we are. And that's just impossible because, for instance, somebody keeps asking me this question when I keep talking about this is, you know, what's your worst financial decision? And the joke, because it is a joke, the joke would be having kids. But the best personal decision I've ever made is having kids because they are the greatest things in your life. And I can tell you, if you haven't got them, they are going to be amazing. You do. And Gemma, I know you've got kids and they are the most important thing in your life. And they are a rational thing to have because they bring so much joy to you. But from a financial rational perspective, they are probably not because the average Australian child from zero to 18 costs the average Australian family between 300,000 and 570,000 Australian dollars for the 18 years that you are supposed to be looking after them. And let's be honest, it's no longer 18 years. It's probably more likely 22 or even as much as 25 years. And that's just one kid. So that that's also why the whole idea around homo economicus is rubbish and the movement now is towards the idea that human beings are rational. We make rational decisions, decisions that are, are reasonable from the point of view that we weigh up so many different options. They're the best option for us. And we do them instinctively because we are instinctively done by biases. We have learned behaviors to actually do what we do. We know how to behave in certain situations, you know, from simply as, you know, hanging around your own personal friends to, as I describe in the book, you know, meeting the king now rather than the queen, uh, you know, that the behaviors have there are completely, and you instinctively do it. You don't even have to think about it. And it's the same with decision-making for finances so that we have innate biases that instinctively go, this is my best option because we are reasonable and we go, yep, that's the best option. Even though under normal economics, that decision, whatever that might be. So for example, let's go on a personal holiday. We need it, blah, blah, blah. From a rational economics perspective, it's a bad decision because it means that your money's not working for you because you're spending it. 
but that isn't how it should be thinking. Your, your, your thinking is what is the most reasonable thing for our family, for our money and for how we use our money right now, we need this. Therefore we're going to spend rather than save and invest. And the opposite is also true. There are times where you go, actually the best option right now is for us to buy a new house. And therefore the growth that comes with that house is the better option, even though we've got a falling market and raising interest rates. Do you know what I mean? So all of those things are what's been fascinating to a, write this book. But what I love talking about with people is that we are all different and how you are different makes you unique. And I think that's a really positive thing. And once you can work out what money is to you, your uniqueness in money, you're going to have such a better journey with it and be so much more comfortable with it as well. You've alluded to a, a couple of things there that I do want to unpick you're absolutely right having kids terrible decision financially absolutely terrible <laughs> love them which very is a really much. bad thing i know yeah. uh, it's a really well, bad we thing to say talk but... about it too much yeah. does it, it just so, doesn't make you feel good about your choices does it oh, it's, it's, a, um... it's a great choice it's the best choice i've ever made well, it's a particularly terrible choice for women, right? Like you don't just have the yeah. cost. You have all of yep. the foregone income and everything else. Mm-hmm. It's uh, no good. We won't talk about it. <laughs> to make us sound far too irrational. But one of the things that I find fascinating is just understanding how irrational you can be. And I was thinking about one of mine. I remember when I first realized I was doing it, I was like, that is truly bizarre behavior. It makes no sense whatsoever. There's a very small personal item. Um, so eye makeup remover, basically. Eye makeup remover, you can buy it from supermarket for $15. It is regularly on sale, half price. Mm-hmm. I will not buy it unless it's half price. Yeah. I will wait. Is eye makeup remover? Does $7.50 make any difference in my life? No. I will quite happily buy coffee for seven people. Which will cost, cost you 30 bucks, 40 30 bucks, bucks. something, and not even think about it. Yep. It's like, of course I will pay for everyone's coffee. Don't worry. Don't get your wallets out. I'll pay for it. It's good. But I will not buy eye makeup remover unless it is on sale. And I'm. That's a, that's a personality trait. So that, that there is <laughs> what, straight What up. do we call that? So that, that. There is two ways to look at that. There is a bias to it, right? So the bias that comes into that is what is one of them is attention bias, right? So your attention is drawn by the fact that the things are on is is being put on sale, right? So your attention is drawn to that item because hang on a minute, there's a benefit to me. It's half price. It's cheaper. So your attention grabs you straight away, even though that might not be the best option for you, right? So yes, that fifteen dollar. I make it remover is the one that catches your attention. You know it, you like it. It's on half price there for it catches my attention. But what it also therefore does is it blinkers you to better options. And what I mean by that is that it was originally 15 bucks. What if the better eye makeup remover that lasts longer and was bigger in terms of volume was 30 bucks down to 15, but you're blinkered by your attention on that one only and you miss that opportunity. The other side of it is that the personality trait that is in money is called as a savings personality. You're a saver in that idea and that your innate bias is drawn to the idea that you are saving money because it's not $15, it's $7.50. And therefore your internal personality goes, this is a benefit for me. And therefore I'm going to buy what to me appears a better option and is saving me money. And that is being used by marketing slash retail sales for many, many millennia in terms of how it works. But it is it is being human because it is what we are drawn to. And this gets back to Cartman and his sort of start studies is that it feeds into something called loss aversion. Loss aversion, what he did about studying about that is he had an idea where basically human beings are geared to really fear loss. And it doesn't have to be money. It's almost anything right? In terms of that sort of idea is that we are geared to loss and there's a fear attached to it. So his study was, if I was to guarantee you $900 or give you the option of getting $1,000, but there's a 10% chance you won't get anything. The study found that the majority of people would take the 900 guaranteed. The rational cold hard facts is that actually the return on both is exactly the same. Um, it's a guaranteed 900 bucks, but you're risking on the second option. The flip side, what he then did was that to show that when you put loss into an absolute guarantee scenario, so I guarantee you're going to lose 900 bucks or you'll lose $1,000, but there's a 10% chance you won't lose anything. People's behavior flips immediately and they'll take the riskier option. And that all comes down to this idea of trying to find value, trying to save. And that gets down to your saving personality about finding that $7.50. 
50, but also because there's a bias in your head that's going, I'm guaranteeing myself $7.50 in my pocket and getting an item that I want. Pretty interesting stuff when you think I was about how that, that works. That is such a sophisticated and complex analysis of my ridiculous habit of buying eye makeup. Yeah, I mean, this, this is why I love <laughs> behavioral finance. But like this is so, and then you can you can bring this into the next part of that is that you bring this into markets, right? So you bring this into the, what your listeners are here to talk about, which is, you know, you look at markets right now. This is where loss aversion is at its worst because you are staring at uncrystallized, and I'll say that again positions that are probably in loss making positions, but you haven't actually done anything about them, uncrystallized positions, where you will go, I cannot take this anymore because your loss aversion bias is kicking in and you'll get out at the worst possible time. Uh, And this is what learning about money cognition, as I describe it in the book, is really, really important is to understand that these biases are great in social and great in personal interactions, but when they come to money, they get in your way. Um, and what I'm trying to get you to do with the book and reading through the book is is making it from being an innate bias that is subconscious and your unconscious behavior to bring it to the front of your mind to making sure that you're aware of it and therefore being able to actually justify to yourself, if I got out of the markets right now, what does that mean for my future investments? What does that mean for the loss that I've made? Does it mean that I therefore go and do riskier behavior? Because as I just described, what we found from Caliban's study is that if you are losing, you are more likely to take risky uh, risky steps to try and offset the loss. And that is another part of the whole discussion as well. So that is why I hope the book is, is interesting to people because it's just trying to bring you to front of mind that your initial reactions are telling you that this is my natural behavior if you can be aware of it, you can actually probably stop yourself from making the mistakes that can come with those knee-jerk initial innate biases that we all have. Yeah, this is really interesting. And this is what I did really want to get into and why I'm so happy to have you here talking about this stuff. Because I do think markets are getting more complex right now. And people who've had a fairly easy run, sorry if you've been in markets for a long time. <laughs> Take offense at that term. That's fair enough. I shouldn't have said it. Um, but, but people who, you know, it's quite fascinating. I see some younger commentators going, you know, you'll get 10% a year in markets and all these things. I'm like, sure, apart from that one year when you lose half of it. You know, like it's. It- yeah. Actually, I'll pick you up on that. So the interesting thing about that exact point. So again, this is the beauty of how people talk to you about money, right? DASX over the last 20 years, average return to you is 9% per annum. I actually deliberately, when I hear those things, I love going back and doing this one thing, which is finding out when was the last time the ASX actually gave you 9% per annum. (laughs) Uh, And I can tell you right now, it hasn't. Not once in the last 20 years. The closest it got was 2016 and it was 11% gain. Yeah. Because giving you the the you know the average per annum is great, and you should be aware of that because nine percent compound returns, which is as Albert Einstein has been credited to say, it's the eighth wonder of the world. It's the most amazing piece of mathematics ever, and it's brilliant. But markets are not that. Markets are jagged and rough and really really horrid to look at. And I, I try and talk about this as well as that human beings are naturally drawn to beautiful things, right? Apple is a great example here. Apple, if you listen to Steve Jobs and his whole principle mechanism for designing iPhones and iPads and MacBooks, et cetera, is that they are aesthetically pleasing because they know that human beings are actively drawn to that. Markets are anything but aesthetically pleasing. They are ugly to look at. If you look at the jagged edges, you look at the COVID decline, coupled that with the biases we just described, all that is is a problem. But if you smooth it out, it looks much better. And that's what, what we're talking about here is that, you know, you smooth out that 20 years and all those jagged edges, it's still 9% per annum. So how do you get around that problem? How do you mentally get past looking at a year like this year or looking at a year like 2020 or looking at a year like 2007, eight, nine, or 2011, most of 2011 through to 2012 or the start of 2000, end of 2015, 2016. So I've just like laid out all of the geopolitical issues that have created issues in global markets. They, they are part and parcel with what we do. And, and what you need to remember is that right now, bear markets happen, you know, on the US, for instance, the US since 1900 averages a correction or more every year. Now, some years they do it three or four times, some years they don't do it at all. So that needs to be pointed out. That gets back to that smoothing idea. Normally the time of them is also only 
several months to maybe maximum six months. Again, this is that time problem is that right here and now you and I are talking about what is going on in markets because it's easy and it's so attention grabbing, forgetting that from going back to 2015 to where we are today, that the market is up around about 20%, includes COVID and includes the decline we have now. Uh, let alone the bottom of COVID to where we are now, we're still up over 15 and a half, maybe even as much as 20% in the US. Um, it's about moving and reorientating your perspective. And once you can do that, your mind will be able to get over this much, much harder, uh, easier, sorry, than, than what is, is currently there. So that, that's where this whole discussion comes from about trying to, to be aware of your mind and your mind's innate bias to protect you, which is what it should be doing. The behavioral bias, biases that you have in your mind that that also just create behavior because it's subconscious all of that is, is part of what i'm trying to, to sort of get you to understand because it's not just markets it's everything that you do with money and and that's that's i think been the most fascinating thing about this is learning and seeing that it's it's a universal problem it's not an australian-based problem or a western culture problem it's across every culture has this same scenario going through it i think you're absolutely right and one of the things that I'm really wondering about at the moment. So we have seen, if I look at the NAB trade data, but I suspect it's reasonably representative, not a lot of selling from Australian equity investors. Starting to see a little bit more selling in the US, but that's because uh, our US investments have almost been exclusively buying over the last five or six years. Like people just buy, mm-hmm. hang on to it forever. Uh, not forever in this situation. People are holding through this environment. We're finding our more mature, more sophisticated, more experienced investors are fairly actively trading their portfolios. A lot of them have trimmed positions that have done very well, particularly in energy stocks. So they've done very well out of that. They're trimming those down. Uh, And lithium, which has gone mental. Uh, But everything else is looking pretty rough, right? And so they're just hanging on to it. The general wisdom is that retail investors panic and they tend to sell into weakness. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen that much weakness in the ASX relative to the US, which we were talking about a second ago. Yeah, and you're right. So we're down, what, 12.5% year to date compared to 23.45% in the States uh, on the S&P 500. So you're right, that, that is good to see and therefore it shows that you know your clients are certainly still able to look through the current scenario which is great to see because the majority of studies show that actually a lot of people won't a lot of people will will crystallize and move out uh, because they just cannot mentally cope with the losses they're staring them in the face well this is the question i wanted to ask you because this is what we're seeing currently as i said the asx is not down dramatically and i think for a lot of investors they're very well informed now relative to previous periods, right? In the GFC, we were all flying blind. Like the GFC was an extraordinary period. You were getting your news from the television in the morning. Everything was terrible. You didn't really know what it was half the time. No one knew what subprime was. It was pretty extraordinary. This time around, everybody knows exactly what's happening, right? We know what rising rates are. We know what inflation is. We've got all the data. We know why it's happening. You can see what's happening in the US. We know why the US markets are off and how much and all those sorts of things. And a lot of investors, I think, understand, yes, the ASX is off, but it's holding up relatively well and it's holding up for these reasons, blah, blah, blah. I do wonder if there is a significant negative turn in markets, whether we will see more selling. That was what happened during the GFC. People held on for quite a while, but then as it continued, they did exactly what you said, which was like, I can't take this anymore. I can take a certain amount of losses, but I can't keep taking them. I'm afraid it'll never come back and I need to get out. And they were getting out at the worst possible time. So apparently the worst day of selling of CBA ever in history was March 2009, which of course was exactly when the market turned around. Um, So the 15th of March was the bottom and I believe that was the heaviest selling day of CBA. Yeah, and I'd I'd also point out the other thing that's really hard about bear markets is the adage is bear markets end with a whisper, bull markets end with a bang. And what I mean by that is that there is always a reason to keep hearing the negativity and that things will get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, not realizing that you're already at the bottom. Um, and what I mean by that is this, the capitulation selling, the capitulation out, the doom and gloom will actually be in your face probably three, four, five months 
still into the rally that's happening inside the, the, the new period. So if you take, for instance, as you said, that March 2009 level, the expectation was that it'd actually be 2009 would be another year like 2008. Uh, you know, the, if you listen to the doom and gloomers, there was no sign in any sort of data at that time that subprime mortgage was over. The amount of people in the US that were having to force sell their homes was getting greater. You know, central banks hadn't been able to get their finger on the pulse with even with the rate cuts they'd done and the quantitative easing they were doing to try and turn it around. What fundamentally is forgotten about markets is that markets are trying to price 12 months from where they were. So the question was, was what does March 2009 look like? The question markets are asking and institutional traders are looking at, what does March 2010 look like? And March 2010 had recession was going to be ending. The cut from central banks were going to be better. You were going to start to see growth. There was already signs of corporate growth and earnings returning. And that was lost. And all that is lost. And that's what I mean by the end of the is a whisper. You don't actually know the bottom. Whereas bull markets, you know when it ends because it blows up like a dramatic explosion like we've seen this year. Um, and we forget that even with COVID, we had just been through the longest bull run in US history. It's the same here in Australia, right? So we're talking about 11 and a half years and in Australia it was nine and a bit years uh, of constant bull market runs. And, and you just you don't even think about it because it's just what you expect. But they, when they end, they end in quite dramatic fashion. And this, again, it's the attention bias, right? So this is what we're talking about here. Your attention is drawn to the doom. Your attention is drawn to the fear because you are geared that way, not realizing that actually the change in the market might actually be in. Now, you're never going to pick the bottom and you're never going to pick the top. I've always said that. That's not just a behavior thing. That is a, a known market fact. You're never going to know that. But for instance, here's an indicator for you that's quite interesting. In the States, in modern history, so the last 40 years, every time that the States has officially declared a recession, that has actually only been the trigger for the bottom. Yet the recession tends to go for another 12 months after it's called, and people still believe that that recession problem is going to impact negatively on markets, despite the fact that markets have actually said, no, we've got to the bottom, we're away. And the reason they're, for, they're doing that, as I said before, they're thinking about 12 months from now and away they go. So if you look back in the 80s, it's a great example because that's when high inflation was really taking off and we've got the same problem now. Every time they declared a recession, the rally was actually about 20 to 25% in the US from when it was declared to where the market got when recession was finally declared over. So these are the things that you miss because your attention's on one thing, which is the negativeness, rather than trying to look at other things to try and bring your mind and your for your money into the whole realization of where the world is currently sitting. Obviously, there's no advice in any no, no advice any of that <laughs> about no, when no markets are going to turn. But no, it's good but- to have that data set, right? And to think about it. I think yeah. one thing I would love to understand more about is whether education helps people make better decisions. Absolutely. Because I think from an investment perspective we are seeing a vastly better uh, educated yeah, yeah. population of investors out there. And to date anyway, because we are where we are, we're seeing relatively calm, well-regulated behaviour. Yes, we are. And that that is certainly what should be pointed out. I mean, we have also now got, I actually think we've learned, and that's I think the other thing about the education about, we've learned through COVID that, you know, declines like we're seeing now are part and parcel with what investors do. They are also part and part of understanding that, you know, there are major changes in our life. Things aren't linear in terms of, of what we do. And COVID, I think, taught the whole world that, not just the investment world, that taught the whole world that life isn't linear and things can change very, very quickly. And understanding that it will also, over time, return. This is the other thing that we're now getting to the post-COVID world and you're now hearing world leaders and the World uh, Health Organization saying that pandemic is ending. Now, COVID will be here forever. It'll be endemic, but the pandemic is over. And that's also, I think what we've learned is that we understand that it will come back. Things will snap back into a level that we expect and therefore our behavior is becoming much better at dealing with issues like this. And I think COVID is the the great learner of, of understanding that you know, when you know, adversity does come because it will come. It will come again that we are much more prepared for it mentally than I think we have been in the past. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting one. For a lot of, I'm going to talk about people more broadly rather than investors specifically, but you talk about 
things changing and adversity mm-hmm. coming and so on. Through your life, the financial circumstances that you face into change a great deal. Like retirees are dealing with something entirely different to a 20-year-old. Recessions are going to very much change how people behave Uh you know, Australia's had an extraordinary run economically speaking. We had a brief downturn during COVID. And as I said, many people had a terrible time during COVID, obviously. Uh, but many others, I'm speaking to some people who deal only with sort of ultra high net worth clients. And they've been making the point that, you know, the rich have been getting a lot richer during this period, to be frank. Like it's been quite an extraordinary phase. When we look at an environment with higher inflation, higher rates, Unemployment's still extraordinarily low, and I'm talking to your skill set now, not as an author, yeah. but as a, yeah, yeah, as, as an economist. economist. Yep. You can talk to this uh, with both hats on, perhaps. Do you think people are going to have to change their behaviour? And I'm probably putting words in your mouth, but it feels like understanding your relationship with money becomes increasingly important when you have to face into different circumstances. Yes. So I think what hasn't happened yet and this is what the RBA is now alluding to with regards to, uh, let's use their term, inflation psychology, is that what their biggest fear is, is that we start to accept price increases as part and parcel of of normal daily a- economic activity. That is a massive problem. Uh, it, it therefore impacts your purchasing power. It impacts the wage you get. And as you've already pointed to, the other thing that comes about that is that your asset valuation will help if you're wealthy, but will not help if you're not um, because you're you're your overall asset you know, mix is likely to be lower. You're more likely to be living off an income rather than living off assets. And that's what we've seen during the COVID period. The difference also is that to get to those level of assets, you've probably used debt to, to finance that. Debt is something wrong with debt. I think as we pointed out, debt is a tool. Um, it's how you use it that can be good or bad. So good debt can be things that are on appreciating assets. Bad debt is those that are not. So just remember that in the back of your head in terms of if you're buying a car, that's all well and good, but that's technically a depreciating asset and you're paying interest on top of that that is now getting more and more expensive because rates are rising. Uh, it's the same if you were to go and put a holiday on, on that as well. Whereas something like a house, for example, although house prices are slightly declining, the argument would be that it is a good debt because you're financing something that is growing, that is that is actually going to get bigger in value. Um, what we've never ex- experienced in living memory, particularly those under the ages of 55, is having a scenario where we are impacted by what we can do, having to actually make conscious choices about do I discretionary spend like I have? Because that I think is the next part to talk to you about, Gemma, is that, that what I don't think is fully woken up to people yet. And you can see that's again today with retail data expanding by 0.6 of 1% month on month. It again shows you that we are still spending. So even though we've had six rate rises, we're about to have a seventh uh, next Tuesday. And there'll probably be an eighth and a ninth by the end of the year is the amount of money that you are paying at the start of the year to the amount of money that you're going to be paying at the end of the year on your loan is going to materially impact what you can and can't do. Uh, and unfortunately, that also means, particularly with what we're talking about here about investing, that's one of the first things people forego, which is really, really hard to talk about because that's actually one of the things that you try and keep. So if you're adding to your portfolio, doing dollar cost averaging or contributing to your portfolio every month, et cetera, all of a sudden you get the squeeze that you're seeing, you're having to divert more money towards your interest repayments. One of the first things people always tend to drop out on is their investments that are actually a growing asset. Uh, and that that is something to be aware of. Just be when you start to see that it is something to to be thinking about. Am I foregoing and transferring my money from having my money in my bank account to a money in an asset, rather than keeping it in my bank account so that I can keep doing the things I want to do? Now, this is exactly what we've been talking about this entire discussion. This is the reasonable decision making that we're talking about here. This is, and it is absolutely reasonable to forego that because you are looking at having a safety net. You're looking at making sure you can pay for your essentials and you still want to have a lifestyle. So that is completely fine. I'm certainly not saying to change that. It's just being aware that this is what will be different that we haven't ever really experienced since the 80s. And most people in their living memory have never had to experience a scenario where they're going to have to make active choices for a period of time. And by a period of time, 12 months, maybe worst case, 18 months, because inflation will actually therefore impact their ability to purchase and their ability to to live the lifestyle that they expect. This is where it gets 
really interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I find this absolutely fascinating. I um, I've been fortunate enough to be alive and sort of an adult for pretty much the entire period Australia's had exceptional economic growth and I haven't had the sort of belt tightening periods many generations had, right? My grandmother, who's since deceased, but she was 96 when she died, her family lost everything during the Depression. She was in her teens and she had to go and work for another family member as a effectively a maid, right? Mm -hmm. Can't think of a better term for it. And she never got over it. And it was quite pervasive through her family and the psychology of her children. And even though times were not always terrible during her lifetime, that formative experience of losing everything and having to go into wasn't indentured work, right? It was pretty humbling. Yeah, but it's work. close enough to it, right? Yeah, so, it was humbling work. Yeah. Um, and it was for a family member as well. So I think it was particularly humbling. Uh, all of these sorts of things, they lasted like at least two generations. Um, and it, I find little habits where I'm like, I did not grow up during the depression. Why am I doing this? This is a ridiculous thing to do. But I wonder with so many of us never having to experience tightening our belts, learning how to live without nice things. Going through periods where suddenly your critical expenses are creeping up and creeping up and creeping up and all of the luxuries just don't fit in your budget anymore. Do you think people are going to find that particularly challenging? And I want to also add, you've got a section in the book on relationships. Yeah, I'll come to that. Surely this is really going to get complicated, right? Yeah, so this all fits into it. So the first part of it, absolutely. So COVID was supposed to be that. COVID was supposed to be that period where all of a sudden people that had, you know, had never ever had the experience of being made redundant or have their careers completely cut out happened, right? So we had this scenario where, you know, you might have had a career in hospitality or in tourism. They're the great ones to give you an example of. It was absolutely cruising and then it was cut off by a health crisis, what happened there is also is that the government pushed that can down the road by saying, no, 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 we're going to support you because we've forced this upon you. So, yep, you had the unfortunate experience of probably losing your job, that the industry that you thought your career was going to be in has changed. That will have formulated in your head and that certainly will be something you will, a behavior learn that you've now had. But you probably didn't have to change a huge amount of what you were doing because there was a government support package there Clearly not as much as what you're probably earning for some cases, but you were able to get through it. It was a little bit different. This time around, the government's A, not there, and B, they're probably part of the problem, along with what's happened during the COVID crisis area. So you're, you're now going to – you've got back into the employment market. You are now having a scenario where your employment just isn't covering what you want to do. Uh, and that is in itself is a fascinating thing. And this is population-wide. So getting back to your story, Gemma, I think it's fascinating because – you know, everybody's got their own personal story like that. Mine's a little bit different, but similar to some extent in that during my teenage years, my father had health issues that caused us to go from having income to not. Uh, and that to this day is still formative for me. Like I still therefore know that. And and then looking at my own personal career and where that happened in terms of the changes was because I worked in finance, I was very lucky in the fact that Although at the time I didn't think I had the money that I needed, as soon as I came out of it, a scenario that I didn't want to be in, I actually realized I did. I actually had the ability to have much more financial freedom than I realized. Uh, and I write about this in the book and, and go and have a look at it. The relationship question is then part and parcel with that. So you just talked about your grandmother and, and that is a relationship to you. I can talk about my grandfather, the relationship I had with him. He's part of the reason I'm in finance and why I invest, but they are complex and, and there's now hundreds of you know behavioral economic studies about relationships because relationships you need to understand they are unique realistically relationships are really really strange things and what i mean by that is that you are you know investing with somebody and by investing i mean your life with a, a, an individual person and an individual that will have different beliefs thoughts and processes clearly you're going to get on clearly you're going to have similar beliefs and, and what have you but they're still different in terms of where they are and the studies are now showing that you know relationships that work are the ones that communicate the most. Those that don't are the ones that, that that don't tend to talk. Money is in the top five things of why relationships fail, which is not surprising. 
But one of the biggest things that came out of, of talking about relationships and getting back to this whole discussion is that the rise of what they are now referring to as financial infidelity, which is where one person in the relationship is adverted commas, cheating with their finances. And what that tends to be is that they are either gambling, uh, it's speculating, buying uh, advantageously that is putting the, the family and the, the group family into, into financial stress. And why it's such a detrimental thing is that money has this idea of you are at a certain point in your life where you can afford certain things. Financial infidelity comes about where all of a sudden, you know, there's a level of debt that's attached to your name that you didn't know about that your partner has then done. All of the years of saving have been completely eroded. You've then got how many years to get out of the debt scenario you might be in or whatever the financial infidelity is, and then having to catch up on those years. So that's something that was really interesting to to, to read about is that when you when I talk to someone like yourself and to your listeners, we live and breathe markets. We are here to invest in markets and, and therefore we don't always realize that our partner might not be like that. Our partner may not actually really have that much interest in that kind of space. And, and that's completely fine. And that's the beauty of relationships. It's about therefore communicating what you're doing, understanding that we are you're working for the both of you. All those kinds of things is, is what's there. And, and managing that will mean that you'll manage your money as a relationship better. And as a group, you'll do a much better thing longer term. And, and it's been one of the best things that I, that I personally got out of writing the book was, was learning about the, the interrelations of relationships with money and how different people are with it and where relationships fit into the money cycle that you're going through. Because it's something sometimes, particularly those that are in it, forget that your partner isn't. Uh, in, in most instances, and therefore they may not understand what you do, how you do, and therefore you need to talk about that and, and where and why you're doing it and the benefit that all of you get out of investing. Yeah, I I find it quite troubling when people I know who are very smart, highly intelligent, highly Just, educated, very yep. sophisticated people on top of every aspect of their lives Except their the money. faintest idea what's going on. It makes with their me finances. sweat behind the knees. I don't know about you. But yeah, like, it makes like, me really anxious. I yeah, have friends like, who um, we, we tell a funny story about when we bought a new car. So it, I've commented on this podcast before. We're not car people. I'm definitely not a car person. We had a car for 14 years. We finally realized it was about to blow up. Had to go buy a new car. I talk about supply chain issues all day, every day, but did not process the fact that we would find it difficult to buy a car. We literally rushed out and dropped a ton of money on a car within 48 hours. Zero prep. It was ridiculous, right? Incredibly ridiculous situation. We could afford to do it. It was fine. Um, and I was telling this story to a friend of mine because I thought it was funny that two people who should know a lot better just handled it so badly. Um, like, <laughs> we should have planned this, right? We should have planned 14 years when you would have to get a new car at some point. Um, we talk about supply chain issues all day, every day. Yep. We knew there yeah. weren't many in the country. Did we think we might have to do a bit of prep? No. Nah. Anyway, quite funny. I'm telling this story to a friend and she made the comment, oh, you massively overpaid. We only paid X for our much higher value car because we didn't buy a fancy car, um, you know, two years ago. And I was like, oh, that's that's interesting. And then... I came home and told this story to my husband. He said, that's just straight out not true, right? That's not what that car is worth. If they bought it new, it would have cost this and there's no way they could have bargained it down by that amount of money. And I've told that story to a couple of people with the actual details in it and they're all like, that is just not true. Like, There's yeah. no way they bought that car for that amount. And then I'm going, oh, my God. That person How does was this told person not know what the car was worth, right? Because they were told something different by their partner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And at no point... Anyway, I was so shocked by this, which then leads into another thing because perhaps it's a cultural thing. So this is another thing you cover and there's going to be the last question I ask you because we're going to be here all day. <laughs> but I love it. It's so interesting. So you make the point about upbringing and about culture in the book. And again, another anecdote, I have a friend who works as a financial counsellor. Yes. Which is, for those who are not aware, not a psychological counsellor. You don't need a psychology degree to do it. It's what the Barefoot Investor has gone and done professionally. And this is a person who you can go to who is employed literally to help you out of a financial bind if you have gotten yourself into quite severe financial distress. And it may well be gambling or a gambling partner or debt or whatever it may be, right? So it's a pretty challenging job. And it's dealing with the 
the technical side, so negotiating on your behalf with creditors and those sorts of things. But it's really difficult having to talk to people in these really difficult situations. And one of the comments she made was, you can see how people found themselves in the situation they're in. Even if their partner was responsible for the problem, you can see how it happened. Mm -hmm. You can see the steps they took and the many times they could have got off that road and made a better decision, but they didn't. And you can see the downward spiral. She's like, it's quite horrendous how clearly... You know, most of them are not accidents. Most of them are not a situation where someone got hit by a car and now they have no ability to earn an income and they couldn't get insurance or whatever. It's not that. It's that they made a series of decisions and those situations, those decisions led them down a path. And then she made a comment that none of her clients have a professor for a father and a teacher for a mother, which is what I have. Mm -hmm. So she was like, all of these people make a series of terrible decisions and end up in difficult situations. However, most of them also grew up in very difficult situations and were never taught how to make good decisions. And I found it such a profound comment. She was like, you can judge their decisions, but the background is generally not conducive to good decision-making. Correct. So there's a lot in that. (laughs) Um, and, And without sort of ruining my book either in terms of sort of going through that. First and foremost, one of the behaviors you just talked about there that comes out quite constantly and it, and, and we use it in, in general slang every day of the week is, is, you know, keeping up with the Joneses. It is an actual psychological thing of actually socially competing, right? So socially trying to keep up with your peers leads to behavior that is certainly and can be very detrimental to what you do. So there is a fantastic study that came out of the uh, I've got to remember which one it was, the uh, Federal Reserve of Philadelphia that actually showed the most likely people to become bankrupt are those that are the neighbours of somebody that's won the lotto because they do not realise that their person they're competing with has actually come into a windfall and spend up to keep with them even though they don't have the level of money that the person next to them had, which they have moved up on. So take that as you will. Try and explain that out to, to what you just described. The next thing about culture and learning is this. We know that between the ages of zero and eight, that is when children learn most about money and their formulation with money over that period of time can remain dormant until they hit their 20s. So that's also something to be aware of as well. The next part of what you just discussed that also comes out in the, in the behavioral economic studies is fascinating that just because of your education doesn't mean you're going to have a certain way of thinking. So culture is the next part of this. And there is a very, very interesting scenario that particularly in Western societies, highly individualistic, uh, those societies that are highly masculine, as they're described by something like Gert Hoshif, is we think in the nuclear family and we think individually. Therefore, we are much more acute to wins and to losses than collective societies because they pull their money together. So a loss is smoothed out by the collective group rather than the smaller amount of money you have as an individual, even if you are very, very well off. And that is something that particularly in in our culture is is an interesting scenario. We also, in Australia particularly, the studies also show our tall poppy syndrome is a massive problem. Talking about money is seen as a tall poppy thing to show or to be advantageous with money for good reason is, 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 is against it. But it also means that you are unable to talk about it when you have problems. It's unable to be talked about when you do well with it to therefore pass that education on. And that's all part of culture, which is a fascinating thing to understand because if we could actually talk about money more between each other, the education that passes on and the less likelihood of actually seeing more people in, you know, financial literacy therefore in financial hardship starts to diminish and, and australia is a massive as a massive problem with financial literacy it is well-known fact that we are one of the most illiterate financial people in the developed world and that is something that i think is a travesty but it is part of our culture and that is a hard thing to define but it is very clear that because we don't like talking about money we don't pass on the education and therefore financial literacy breeds financial hardship we could keep talking all day for a very long this. time. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like so fascinating, right? So fascinating. One of the things I love about the book is that you do. So it's one thing to understand yourself; it's another thing to make better decisions as a result of what you know. And for many people, 
it's really difficult to just even face into the fact that you struggle with this, mm-hmm. let alone do anything about it. But I and think you should you- feel bad about it. Like this is the thing, you are not alone. The majority of the population just don't watch their finances. And therefore, if you you do feel you know slightly back by your own finances, you are not alone in this. And that's that's what I'm trying to sort of point out this is that there is no one size fits all. You are unique in what you are and how you work with money. It's about helping you find coping mechanisms, pointing out, you know, just little changes in your behavior or little changes in what you do can make such a, a, a massive difference to your finances longer term. And, and that I think is what I'm trying to sort of also help there is that if you can realize this from an individual perspective of you, you will find that you start making much better choices, not just for yourself, but for your family and for everybody else around you. Yeah, not everyone was uh, lucky to have lucky enough to have the parents I had, right? Um, so, tell us about the book launch. Tell us how people can find out more. I think for so many people, there is so much value in understanding more about how you relate to money, helping you make better decisions, helping you understand why you made the bad ones, all those sorts of <laughs> things. Tell us about how we can find out. Yeah, and I also want to point that out. Have I? Somebody keeps asking, have I made bad financial decisions? Absolutely. Have I kept making them? Yes, because my behavior gets in the way sometimes and I know it does. And I'm like, hang on a minute, I know this, I do this as a specialty, but it still gets in my way. So this is what I'm also trying to say is that even someone like myself who lives and breathes this, who does this, I still make mistakes and that's fine. Like they really are. It's the difference is that my mistakes are now getting smaller and smaller. So they're not hurting me as much financially. So you didn't launch- just rush out and buy the last car in Sydney because you forgot to get organized and get one before that? No, but like for instance, you know, making those rash decisions about being told about a certain stock to buy, don't do that anymore. Um, or, you know, making a fairly rash purchase when I realistically probably didn't need it. Those kinds of things have changed, but I still buy things for myself or for my wife or for my kids when I'm like, no, actually, this is this is fine. I can handle buying this, whatever it might be, whether it's from buying my kids a, a new, you know, sort of blackboard for them to draw on, which is obviously great for them and their education or buying something nice for, for my wife or what have you. That is still fine. It's about not doing the irrational thing and, and those kind of things. They're, they're the things that I think you can change and and get better with and so getting back to your question about look the book launches on the 11th of october uh it'll be in all pretty much good bookstores you can go online it's on booktopia and on amazon you can get it pretty much pre-ordered now um it's been a really fascinating thing to do because as you and i have spoken about many times when i've been on this podcast it's normally macroeconomics and and markets etc to go back into my uni days of, of picking up on behavior and what is my absolute passion talking about people's behavior and money. It's been such a beautiful process. So if you do go out and buy the book, thank you so much. But I, I really hope you you get something out of it because even writing it, I did, let alone hopefully passing on some of the information that comes from it as well. Evan Lucas from InvestSmart, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jamma. Thank you so much for listening. Also, we love hearing from you guys. We receive fantastic feedback. We love getting your questions and suggestions for future topics, always super useful. Please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.